Hi there, you are listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, produced in Sydney and beamed all around the world via the interwebs, the internet, you know. Hey, my name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining me today. Randall Waller is our featured guest. Had a great talk with Randall. Randall is a bona fide rock star, and you'll find out why very shortly. But first, I need to let you know today's episode is brought to you by Ugroove. Ugroove are the cool people who redesigned our Guitar Speak podcast logo. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Warren Scott. He's a designer and he's a killer drummer, so you can book him for a gig or you can get him to design stuff for you. Or like I've done, you can do both. Uh, you can get to him at ugroove at optusnet.com.au. We're also brought to you by the Michael Dolce 2016 Funk Fusion Masterclass. And if you've been listening for a while, you'll know I got to one of these classes in, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago. It was brilliant. Here's Michael to tell us a little bit about what happens at one of these classes. Hi guys, this is Michael Dolce inviting you to my 2016 Funk Fusion Masterclass Tour. To give you a brief rundown of what the night consists of, we get 10 players in a room in a really relaxed atmosphere, nothing too intimidating. We cover soloing over the one chord vamp. I will be sharing all my concepts that have worked for me over the years and I still use to this very day. The idea is to show you guys these ideas and apply them to your own voice. If you feel that you know how to play a pentatonic scale and a major scale, that's all you really need. Um, if you're interested in attending the class, you can book through my website at www.michaeldolchimusic.com. So I look forward to chatting with you all and hopefully catch you at my next masterclass. Cheers for now, guys. All right. Thank you, Michael. And Michael is running a really great um, competition with some brilliant giveaways, including a Mission Rewa pedal, an Evil Angel Trinity humbucking pickup, cool pickup, a box of GHS strings, a silly guitar strap, heaps of cool stuff, um, some picks as well. For details on that, go to Michael Dolce Music on Facebook or look up our Facebook site, Guitar Speak Podcast, and you'll see a note kind of stuck to the top of our page, easy to find on how to enter that. Now, that is only for Australian residents. And it wraps up in the first week of November, so check the posts for, uh, for more details. Okay, on to my interview of the day. Randall Waller first made his mark on the thriving Aussie pub rock scene of the 1980s both as the frontman of his band Avion and also as a sideman to some really big Australian acts such as Dragon, John English, Billy Thorpe, just to name a couple. Internationally, he worked with Bonnie Tyler in the late 1980s and was actually one of the first Western musicians to tour Russia as part of that gig. During the 1990s, Randall was a member of Shania Twain's touring band, which was just a massive gig. And uh, Randall's got heaps of great stories about that, including working with Mutt Lang, one of the greatest rock producers of all time. Oh yeah, he's worked with Keith Urban too. There you go. Hey, these days Randall is at home back in Australia, back in Sydney, raising a family and working on his own stuff and still doing a bunch of really cool gigs as well. All right, so this interview is broken into two parts. So here's part one of my interview with Mr. Randall Waller. Okay, Randall Waller, welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast. Well, thank you. Good to be here. 
Great, mate. Great to have you. Great to have you. Um, now, Randall, I want to talk about your career, which has been amazing. Um, but very recently, if we just it's do something... incredibly lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, you played at the Gary Moore Remembered gig. Uh, yeah, what, that's right. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Ah, uh, that was... Uh, look, you know, the whole... Um, it, it does fly a little close to the tribute thing, but it wasn't... Uh, I didn't feel like it was a tribute thing. Mm -hmm. um, it was uh, sort of, uh, it was just called Remembering Gary Moore. And uh, I, I guess what's good about that is that I grew up listening to him through the 80s and he was just uh, really one of my heroes. And I think it was a, I felt like it was a good opportunity to make his music more uh what broadly known, widely known, and stuff. Not only that, it's. You know, I mean, you can have principles of you know. I don't do tribute things, which is not true. I have done tribute things, but you know, it's not something I look for. Mm -hmm. However, having said that, it's uh, it's always fun to get together with that bunch of guys. You know, uh, most of the time you don't get together with other guitar players because they're off. You know, you're each off doing your separate band things. Yeah, of course. Um, and so getting together with uh, Mal Eastick, I met for the first time. Um, Phil Emanuel, who else was it? Chris Camzellis is always a great hang. I love him and I love his playing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dave Lezzo, who's just one of my favourites ever. Um, so, you know, and it's just always a laugh. Steve Edmonds, you know, it's just always a great laugh. And uh, I do it for the hang as much as anything else. Yeah, sure. Unreal. Yeah, it was a great gig. You did, um, so your two songs, you did a Thin Lizzy tune. Yep. With the harmonies and stuff with Michael Katselos doing the other parts. That was that was super cool. Yeah, it's good fun, that one. I like that one. Yeah, yeah nice. And you did uh, Still Got the Blues, which is like the iconic yeah, 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 blues yeah. era, Gary Moore, hey? Yeah. Yeah, it was probably, I don't know, was that a wise choice or not? I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, so that's great. The thing I well, loved no, about I the night, like, I guess it, that you've touched on too, it, it wasn't um, a tribute per se, like a tribute act. Like no one was trying to yeah. ape Gary Moore note for note. Like you all brought your own thing to it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, exactly. How did the Thin Lizzy thing come across? Was that all right? Yeah, that was epic. That was epic. Yeah. I, was, I was waiting for some harmonies at some stage. I knew they were coming yeah. up. So um, yeah, yeah, that was fun. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I think it, yeah, it's important to tip the hat to, to Thin Lizzy because, you know, Gary Moore was a, you know, fairly prime mover in that band, sort of in and out, you know, and, and played a fairly important part in his career, I think. Yeah, absolutely. He had, he had a couple of runs with, with those guys, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah, cool. So um, so for you, so that, that gig was awesome. Going back there, what, what got you started on guitar? What was the inspiration? Oh, jeepers. Um, Creedence, talking about this yesterday, Creedence Clearwater Revival was the, the first band that really lit me up. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, Cosmos Factory and... Grapevine, I think, was really the first thing that really uh, opened my eyes to just guitar and rock music in general. Um, I followed them intently. Uh, they only had one other album out after that, I think, one or two. Mm -hmm. They had Hey Hitchhiker. Hitchhiker, I think, was a single that was kind of heard it on radio here in Sydney, and it was like, wow. Uh, it's actually on the radio. I couldn't believe it. it was so exciting <laughs> to hear it on two as end. Um, but uh, after that, I guess uh, I started, I guess 72, 73, I started getting into 
uh, Deep Purple. And Richie Blackmore really just uh, still, yep. uh, for me, would be the most exciting player that cool. I've been. He's, he's just eccentric and weird and has his own thing. And, and the sound is just, the sound he generates out of a Stratocaster is nothing short of brutal. Uh-huh. And I just love it. It's so aggressive and and nasty and angry. You know, I just uh, love it. Yeah, <laughs> mighty. Yeah, love it. So uh, listening to him uh, playing uh, the Burn album was a watershed one for me. Uh, Burn and, and Stormbringer, I guess, were big albums for me. Uh, um, cool. They would be the mo- the main prime movers for me in terms of inspiration and, and, you know, back when I was beginning, yeah. Yep, great. And do you have a musical family? Because I know your brothers play. Um, yeah. Kenny on yeah. bass and Johnny on drums. Um, like, was that was the household, was there a, uh, yeah. you know, like an atmosphere yeah. of learning? Yeah, yeah mum and dad uh, were players. Dad played saxophone and flute and mum wrote songs and sang and, uh, you know, did a couple of little albums, bless her heart, and... And she's a yeah, she's a great woman. And you know, we we were brought up in church, and you know, we were all uh, very much imbued with uh, church music and uh, uh, throughout our young years. And uh, so, without sort of uh, without thinking too much about it, that's sort of where I ended up in the first part of my playing and uh, and the first records that I made. Okay. Uh, yep. I actually started sort of thinking myself sort of thing. So, uh, but uh, my sisters also, I, I had two twin sisters. Uh, they often come in twos, twins. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, sadly, we lost one of them uh, three years ago to a hereditary disease that also took my mum about oh, seven okay. years, seven or eight years ago. Um, uh, and so uh, that was uh, really tragic and... Uh, very hard to handle at the time, sure. um, uh, but she was musical, and my other sister is also musical. So yeah, it, it, it somehow runs runs through somewhere there. Yeah, that's great. That's cool. And um, when did um, when did you start playing in bands? Did you have some garage bands or things going on? Uh, oh, I'm, geez, I, look, I did. I did a bunch of recording before I ever sort of had a band and once the recording was done my first little sort of independent solo recording um, I started you know having requests for gigs and stuff and okay. so threw a band together around that as a result of the record rather than the record uh, being a natural outgrowth of the band which, okay. is, you know, which it would normally be yeah sure so, um, uh, not really garage bands, but uh, you know, after doing a couple of recordings, sort of in that sort of in the within Christian music, I suppose you call it, mm-hmm. uh, moved on and uh, uh, and we formed uh, Lionheart, which would become Avion because okay, uh, yep. we had to change the name because someone else was using it, and um, uh, that was in '72, and uh, we made a concerted effort to. Uh, do a bunch of demos and uh, and shop them around. We were able to uh, score a publishing deal pretty much straight away with a guy called Chris Gilby who was aligned with MCA okay. Publishing and uh, he helped us uh, score the deal with RCA. 
Okay, cool. Record late in that year. Yeah. Uh, just recorded in November, the first Avion album. And, uh, yeah, uh, it came out in maybe April the following year. It did okay. You know, it was, uh, you know, some quite often people will tell me that they feel like the band deserved to do better. And uh-huh. I'll listen back on those records and I think, eh, yeah, they're, they're okay. You know, <laughs> they're okay. Uh, but you know, I can see why they didn't set the world on fire. You know, it was they were never going to do that. Uh, but uh, I suppose, it, in, on balance, you thinking about other stuff that was on the radio at the time. You kind of think, well, geez, you know, maybe ours was, was ours was certainly as good as that. You know, but uh, I don't know. The whole radio airplay thing has seemed very uh, fickle and uh, a uh, bit of a click, a bit of a boys club or something or sure. got a record company you know slipping them you know holidays to hawaii or something to make yeah, sure right. and, you know we never had that sort of um, we we're, were, were never in the hip crowd with all that sort of stuff so. sure yeah all that pay to play and payola yeah. kind of radio stuff yeah. sure um so you did two records with avion we did um we did a bunch of recording for a second album yep in uh cheapest by the time that was 85 yeah uh, out of which came one single okay uh, but yeah really uh, that we needed production mate what we needed was a, a firm hand of a producer and what I've come to understand after decades of doing this uh, is that a producer in terms of music and making records as opposed to a producer in TV and film world, mm-hmm. completely different tasks. Um, producer for a record needs to be, as far as I understand it, and as far as uh, I'm concerned, is involved in every aspect of the making of that record from the ground up. And I'm, I'm talking about lyrics, melodies, arrangements of songs, okay, um, yep. sometimes co-writing, but not necessarily. Uh <clears throat> And then the recording, the uh, n- not the engineering. Uh, it's good to have someone else engineering that, but but overseeing the engineering to such a degree where uh, it's um, uh, it's directed by the producer, where the producer might say the snare sounding too thin or, or whatever. Can you can what can you do about that? You know, sure. using his ears, but then having the engineer bring what he can to that. Uh, piece of the puzzle so we needed somebody that was going to step in look at the songs and say this is this is i like this idea here this is good this is strong this bit's rubbish get rid of that get rid of that the playout's too long or it takes too long to get to the chorus you know all of these kinds of things um uh, or you need you know there's you need more to set the chorus apart you know to so when you hit the chorus everyone knows here's the chorus you know um because they're aiming for, you know, you're aiming for bloody, you know, ten-year-old kind of uh, maturity level in listening. Yeah, know? sure, sure. So uh, we didn't have that, and we really needed that. And I listened back to the songs, and I think, cheap as I would do them differently now, and you know, it would be a lot better now. But you know, I did what I could at the time. So uh, we we didn't have that for the second recording with RCA. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so a lot of that was really wasted time and a lot of wasted money. Uh, 
RCA ended up letting us go, and we were uh, then signed by EMI, mm-hmm. uh, and they spent a lot of money on making a record that was the following year, and that record was uh, produced by Peter Dawkins, who was a lovely fella, really good guy, uh, engineered by uh, someone who I won't even mention, but he decided that um, <laughs> once with a I don't know, from the day that I walked in, he decided that I was some young know-it-all upstart who needed to be put in his place, and, and he was the man to do it. So okay. it was a battle, you know, from from start to finish. Sure. Uh, uh, incredibly frustrating. And we were we were up at 301 in Castle Street, in Castle Rock Street, yep. uh, for six weeks. I spent a lot of money on it. And, um, and I had three years of my life in that record. And... Uh, it sounded, you know, at the end. By the end, I knew it was sounding bad, sounding ordinary, and it was really, really frustrating. Uh, so much so, I ended up having to get the manager in and said, "Look, Randall's really not happy with this. What can be done about it? We need to re-record guitars on this or that or the other." Mm-hmm. And uh, the rest of the band even thought I was losing my marbles, you know, okay. uh, which was, you know, that was pretty disturbing. Uh, and then when the record finally came out, uh, well, it didn't come out when the fi- when, when we had a final mix, uh, which they assured me, you know, you know, the engineer assured me, once you hear it with all the you know, effects on it and everything, it's going to be huge. Don't worry yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, it didn't. It sounded just as hideous as I knew it would. And um, uh, and the band even came, you know, came to me one by one and said, "Gee, the record doesn't sound that good, does it?" Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Really, uh, so uh, we were saved in that instance. Uh, the record company listened to it. They said there's not a single there. I wrote another single with Clive Shakespeare from Sherbet, who's just a, a great mate of mine and a real mentor back in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love Clive. Uh, we lost him a couple of years ago, um, and uh, we wrote an extra song. He and I it was called Celebration as a as a single. Yep, and the record company loved that, and they thought, "Yep, that's good. That earned us the right to then for them to spend a little bit of m- more money on retrieving the rest of the album and salvaging the rest of the album." Oh, okay, wow. Two and a half days, uh, in during which we recorded, uh, re-recorded drums on at least two tracks, re-recorded most of the guitars on the entire album, and mixed. Wow, so, that's epic. That's what White Noise is. The White Noise, uh, our second record, is really a salvage job. Okay, yep. I remember, um, I remember, yeah, the album, I remember Celebration. I remember, um, yeah. I remember jamming on it in, in a mate's garage, and we, we could sort of do the intro. I mean, we weren't playing it properly, right, right. but we could get through the, the, the intro with that little the guitar figure with the, the fifths yeah. and stuff, but, um, yeah. but we couldn't work out the rest of the chords, so that was it for us. <laughs> what were you... Um, what were you playing back then? Because um, you went on to do lots of sideman work as well. So, what sort of gear were you were you lugging around then? Um, you know, I was using a uh, uh, a mongrel Stratocaster that I built, mm-hmm. and that had a uh, on that record. It was uh, I think it had a just a humbucker like fifty nine uh, Duncan fifty nine in the back. Yep, um, and a uh, Oh, it had a, uh, 
an old 1959, a 1974 model 1959 uh, Super League, Marshall Super oh, League. Cool, nice. It's really strange because um, Paul Janelle had one. He was the other guitar player in the band, great guitar player. Yeah. And uh, we had lots of laughs with Paul. Um, and uh, he he already had a Super League at when he had when he first uh, bought his. I still had a JCM 800, a 2203, you know, the old standard. Oh, yeah, yep. Yep. Which is a big noise. You know, they make a big racket, those things, <laughs> and, and a good noise, you know. But uh, there was something about the cleanness and, and the punch of the of the Super League that was just, uh, you know, pretty irresistible. So uh, I found one in the trading post then. You, there was no eBay, right? So, of course, yeah, every Thursday. Yeah, yeah, that's it, mate. Yeah, yeah. So you, you race down to the news agent to get the trading post, and I found one down in Wollongong somewhere. And the guy said, "Yeah, I just, I've got to sell it. Just it's too freaking loud, you know. It's just too massive." Yeah. So um, I thought, well, yeah, that sounds good. So uh, went down there and, and bought this thing. And I got it for like five, six hundred bucks because wow. you know you, you couldn't sell them back then. You know, they were just too loud and. Uh-huh. And people didn't know what to do with them. There was no master master volume, right? So you had to either put a pedal in front of it or just turn the thing up so that it shake, shook the foundation. Right? <laughs> so yeah, they didn't quite know how to how to deal with them. So yeah, I bought that and um, took the back off it and looked at the serial number in it on the inside of the amp chassis. And Paul and my amps were consecutive serial numbers. Oh, wow. No way. Can you believe that? <laughs> Seriously, they were consecutive numbers. No way. Yeah, maybe 73, 73, 74. Yeah. Oh, so yeah, that's what, uh, and that's what uh, I used on most of that album. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm. And a mongrel, I guess that mongrel strat that I've put together and, uh, uh, you know, probably I, I, with the... Uh, with the Super Lead, I used uh, the Orange Distortion pedal, which I, a, a tip I picked up from Kevin Borich. Oh, okay. He always used two 50-watt Super Leads yep. with the Orange DS1, the old Orange the Boss. The Boss DS1, one. yeah. Uh, and um, at one point, I even put the pickup that he had in his Stratocaster in the back of mine. It was oh, a really? Casio, uh, some hot rail, not, not a rail, but it was a really stinking hot uh, single coil pickup that made noise like there was no tomorrow, mate. It was like <laughs> Armageddon when you turned it up. It was just <laughs> like that. But when you started playing, you know, the, uh, the uh, actual signal did drown out the noise <laughs> uh, and it made a hell of a racket. Um, yeah, so that was. I think we might have had that in there for a little bit of that album as well. Okay, um, cool. That and the distortion pedal and the super lead. And nice. I've heard on reasonably good authority that uh, the Nirvana, uh, Teen Spirit, was recorded with a super lead and a DS1. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. Nice. Mate, I had a DS1 then as well, the classic orange box. It's a great thing, as long as you... I, I couldn't run it into the JCM 800 yeah. with, with the master model. The master model couldn't do it. It was just because there was already so much gain in it. Sure. And it just sounded a, a tin, like a little mosquito. It sounded hideous. Yeah, the but, plexi would take it a bit, a bit better. Plexi, mate. Oh. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Um, all right, so after Avion, um, 
you you mm. end up doing some pretty notable sideband work in Australia. What what sort of gigs were you picking up? Um, the well, Avion finished uh, yeah, basically on the twelfth of September in '87. We had been doing, uh, and that was a I can't remember it was a Thursday or Friday night. Uh, we'd done a whole week of uh, opening for Dragon, mm-hmm. and that night uh, uh, we were on the way back from Shell Harbour Workers Club, and uh, there was a car accident, and uh, our keyboard player Evan Murray, who was just one of the sweetest guys on earth, mm-hmm. uh, was killed in that accident. So that um, was a rather it was a watershed moment in my life, really, that night, and so. Uh, um, each night, though, uh, leading to that, up to that night, uh, during that, through that week, all the Dragon guys uh, were in the wings watching us because uh, we kind of we'd been doing it for a long time by that point. It's eighty-seven, September eighty-seven. Yeah, we'd been we'd had it, uh, you know, five years of a lot of work and. Uh, like 82, 83, 84, we, we did minimum 200 shows you know, wow. in each of those years, minimum. And so, plus a lot of recording, a lot of writing, and a lot of mistakes, and a lot of, you know, wasted recording, and trying to write songs, and, mm-hmm. you know, just learning, you know, just learning what we were doing. Um, the album had come out, White Noise had come out, it was a salvage job, but it sounded okay, sort of, you know, it was okay. Uh, Peter Blyton was the saviour of that record, bless his heart. I, I love you for that, Pete. Um, and uh, uh, and we were playing those those songs, and it was sounding as good as we were ever going to make it, you know. And I'd learned, I'd done a lot of gigs and learned sort of how to use my voice better. And anyway, they were in the wings watching every night, sort of shaking their heads, going, "Wow, check this out." Dude. They were blown away, and they were raving about it after after each cool. uh, night. So after that uh, accident that happened that night, um, Alan Mansfield was uh, part of Dragon, of course, as he still is, I think. And um, and uh, his girl Sharon O'Neill had another album coming out, and so I ended up joining the band oh, and okay. took the album. I think it was called Physical Favors or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had um, Maxine on it. I think that was the her big hit, or one of her hits. Maybe that was the album before this one. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm not sure, mate. Actually, yeah, good question. I might be wrong on that. Maybe you're right. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, so anyway, um, I did that, and then uh, early in uh, the following year, '88, I did a stint with Dragon, playing yep. with Dragon, which was big fun, playing alongside Tommy Emmanuel. You know, and intimidating and crushing and depressing and because <laughs> you know he's an absolute freak of nature that guy yeah he, absolutely. He's a freak and a force of nature he's just unbelievable so um did that for a while and then uh ended up going to do a gig in uh bangkok uh because uh a guy called steve white was managing well known in the industry great fellow good, good mate of mine still today um was managing Dragon, and uh, he put together he he needed to put together a band to do a uh, rock and roll rodeo show in Bangkok. Okay. So, uh, yeah, weird, eh? And so the idea was the idea was kind of sound, 
and I won't bore you with the details, but basically the idea was, you know, how uh, motocross, you know, motorcycles, dirt bikes, you know, uh, was brought into stadiums with supercross, right? And they, okay, yeah. And they do, that's developed into Nitro Circus and all these extreme sort of, you know, doing the flips on motorcycles, ridiculous jumps and yeah, all of that. Yeah, cool. Well, you know, before that, there was Supercross, which was racing on a circuit in a stadium, right? And they'd, they'd truck in tons and tons and tons of dirt into mm-hmm. a stadium and and, uh, and run these races. So the idea was, with this thing, was it would be a rodeo in a stadium, like in the Sydney Entertainment Centre. Cool. Okay? So there would be a band playing, there'd be dancing girls, laser light show, the whole thing. The prototype for this show was to be in Bangkok. Oh, okay. Uh, long story short, the uh, local finances had tried to do it without uh, using the promotional uh, services of the local promoters. Yeah. And they kind of were fairly wealthy and powerful people hooked into the government and they made it virtually impossible for the show to go ahead. There were death threats and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, but... You know, leading up to that, it was uh, in Bangkok. We'd done a we'd done a uh, theme song for it, a, a ridiculous film, a really embarrassing film clip. <laughs> it was being played on on TV in Bangkok before we before we even arrived. <laughs> nice. And, uh, it was really embarrassing. And uh, mate, we got there and it like a massive, I mean, tennis court soft billboard downtown Bangkok advertising cowboys and uh, I would walk around you know these shopping centers and stuff and people would recognize me it was like being a star for a day it was wow. just, yeah <laughs> they would recognize me from watching this satellite cowboys film clip which I'd, I'd only seen once right? so <laughs> it, it was really freaky and weird but and in the end we never did a show the first the tape for the first <laughs> came and went and they're like no show and people were and our name ended up being mud the whole satellite cowboys name was mud absolute mud because people had bought tickets and they weren't being refunded i was just it was a shamozzle everyone came home after uh three weeks and me and my then wife went on to london and we ended up staying there for five years basically for four four years nine months okay Uh, yeah and i ended up being guitar tech over there for Bonnie Tyler. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and her um, manager ended up managing me. We tried to get a record deal over there and, you know, yeah. and that whole thing. And I spent a lot of time there writing and recording and uh, without very much success at all, really. Sure. So, um, but ended up playing with Bonnie a fair bit. Went to toured. Uh, I ended up playing bass with her at, at at uh, one point in Moscow and Lithuania. Wow. wow. And, uh, and then uh, and whilst, whilst I was guitar teching at the same time. Okay. Um, yeah, which is pretty wacky. How do you do um, the gig and tech at the same time? Yeah, yeah not really. No, but uh, <laughs> I had a red hot go. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, I went to Greece and, you know, the Persian Gulf and with her and Norway wow. for six weeks. It was just, yeah, it was surreal. It was fabulous. And she must have been pretty huge back then. That that, oh, that was at her zenith. Absolutely massive, yeah. And you know that she had just released a record, Cheapers. What was it called? It was the one after Total Eclipse of the Heart and all oh, that. Okay. And it, 
was Desmond Childs produced it, uh, yeah. wrote a songs on it, and uh, oh, mate, some great songs on it. Yeah. And she, simply the best, was on it. She recorded it long before Tina Turner. Oh, really? Did. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a massive hit in Europe, uh, particularly Scandinavia. Okay. Absolutely, number one up there. And uh, uh, she did uh, "Save Up All Your Tears," that I think uh, Cher then recorded later. Um, she did a song that Kiss recorded. What was that one? Right, anyway, yeah, there was like it was tribute to Dave Aston, the, the manager, in the song choice because four of them ended up going on and being hits for other bands, other people. Okay. For some reason, it didn't work for her record. I don't, I don't really know why. Uh, I wasn't sort of privy to the inner workings of all of that, but yeah, sure. it just didn't seem to work. But we did some fun touring and stuff. And, Wow. And got Bonnie pretty well. She's, she's a you know, great woman and great laugh. What was um what was Russia like? Because in the late eighties, it was that's still pretty early in the time of Western bands coming. As Nost, yes, that's right. Yeah, she was uh, pretty much the second. Uh, she was just shortly after Elton John went okay. there. He was, I think, the first kind of Western artist to go over there. Wow. Mate, it was uh, Soviet Russia, and it was dismal, dark, bleak, uh, depressing. And uh, uh, as far as I understand it, it has completely changed now. Yeah, right. Yep. Um, yeah, it, but it seemed to it seemed to my sort of unlearned eyes that um, Gorbachev really didn't have much of a choice. I mean, uh, it. People were kind of satellite television was starting to come in and mm -hmm. and uh, cable television and people were seeing that what they'd been told about the West, how people lived on the streets and they didn't have homes and and everyone lived in poverty, uh, they were seeing that that just simply wasn't true, <laughs> you know, uh, and they'd been led up the garden path and really ripped off. Yeah, um, wow. Uh, and it was. Glaring, it was becoming glaringly obvious, and that, of course, it was how that house of cards completely fell down once uh, once that wall came down. Mm, yeah, in November November ninth, eighty nine. Eighty nine, yeah, in uh, so in Germany. Uh, yeah, it really, but it was eye opening to me, and it was fascinating and and um, exciting and cheap uh, mystical to be there. At, at such a time, yeah, and wow. it's cold because it was it was <laughs> November December '88. Okay, okay. Yeah. so what next? What what happens after then? So did you go back to the UK following those tours? Yeah, um, yeah, it was there for you know just after just constantly writing and trying uh, recording and doing what work I could. Um, it um, ended up coming back home. It just yeah, and it hit a dead end there, really. Sure. Um, mind you, uh, my manager there, the, like Bonnie's manager, he said, yeah, he begged me not to go come back to Australia. He said, you, he said you're putting yourself behind a brick wall again. You know, okay. Which is true. <laughs> uh, you know, you really are. Um, because when I came back, it was uh, 92, 93, yep. the, the heyday of the 80s, uh, you know, pub rock thing was on the way out. Grunge was back in. 
yeah. her grunge was in and uh, things were changing quite quite radically. Poker machines started to come in and yeah. I know coming back in, like by the time I came back in 93, things were beginning to change in music in Australia yeah. uh, and not for the best. Well, for, uh, um, for our listeners, Randall, we've got listeners around the world and um, maybe not everyone knows, but as you said, in the 80s, you were doing like, what, 200 gigs a year? That's right. And that yeah. was everyone. That was like if, if you had a half-decent band, you could find work and if you would work lot. hard. Yes, exactly. By yeah, the early was... 90s with poker machines in, clubs weren't booking bands as much. Lots of venues were shutting down. So That's right. just yeah. to put a bit of context to that, so you came back to a very different um, scene over here. Very different. What did you do then as a working muso? What, how did you make things work for yourself? Um, well, yeah, my wife had uh, kind of left at that point and so she'd gone back to London and... Uh, and so I was back here in Australia in '93, and and really that I found that sort of completely uh, devastating. And so uh, I just uh, I didn't want to play or sing or really do any of that stuff. Okay. Uh, uh, but I spent uh, basically a lot of that time '93, '94, '95. I spent in the studio, okay, uh, by a, a friend of mine who ran a publishing company and uh, did a lot of engineering and mixing work for him and uh, capitalising on all that I'd learned sort of in the UK doing my own demos and engineering all of that, writing, So, um, yeah, and so I became an engineer for him and and I did a lot of work for him. Um, uh, And... Uh, and then I got a call from uh, John English. So, okay. Uh, yep. I was also still doing a lot of vocal sessions for ads and jingles and stuff. Uh, you know, JJ's jeans. It's a warehouse. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you gotta love, 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 whatever. You know, all of that. So I did like dozens and hundreds of jingles. Wow. So I remember the JJ's one very well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, <laughs> so uh, um, a guy who did some of the programming for songs at one of the major studios that did those demos, did, did, did those jingles, he uh, was a friend of John English and John was looking for a guitar player and uh, okay. Charlie threw my name in and ended up playing with him for 93 right through to 98. So, wow, cool. Uh, which was great fun and John's a great guy and, and uh, yeah, anyway... Um, played with him and did you know, touring on and off and uh, then also played with Billy Thorpe which was a lot of fun as well yeah uh, cool 96, 97 okay um, yep. and back with John playing with John English in 97 I met my now wife yeah great and, uh, she was the chick singer in the band and I was a guitar player it was you know very extremely stereotypical <laughs> and uh, uh you know, uh, she was all over me like a rash, and I just felt sorry for her. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Um, so uh, that's where we met. And then uh, early '98, I um, uh, oh, my mate uh, and Andy Seashon, yep. the bass player in uh, in the band with Billy Thorpe. Oh, okay. And yep. Andy and I had had a mutual admiration for for what each other did. Um, 
before this, but that was the first time we actually uh, had a chance to work together. Right. So, um, come uh, 97, early 97, was it 97? Yes, it was. He, uh, he'd had a, he'd had a gutful of uh, Australia and doing the same old, you know, gigs and same runs around, you know, the East Coast and mm-hmm. uh, with really not much, not that much to show for it. You know, sure. you could survive, you could make a living, uh, but, you know, you really couldn't get ahead, you couldn't buy a property or anything like that. So uh, he decided to head to New York and long story short, he ended up after a year of really tough graft and playing in up to nine bands at a time Um, and a lot of the time playing for tips and and just cold calling management companies and stuff like that. Um, He did the hard yards, I tell you. Uh, uh, He ended up, uh, his audition for playing with Shania Twain was to do The Letterman Show. Uh, And uh, so he did that and, uh, you know, he's an extremely talented man. Uh, great singer, great bass player, and just a good guy to have around, um, and good looking, and, and all, and like muscly as all hell. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, he's a unit, yeah, I've seen. Unit, yeah, yeah, he is. So um, anyway, he had uh, he had called me uh, late in '97 when I was uh, still playing with John, and I just met Susie here, mm-hmm. and uh, and he said, look, uh, you know, we've got this. You know this guitar player that they've got at the moment in this Shania thing. It's I don't know if it's going to work out. Like, what are you what are you doing with yourself at the moment? You know, and so the conversation started. I ended up sending over demos and you know this and that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mutt Lang, who was Shania's husband at the time yeah. and produced uh, extraordinaire. Um, anyone who knows his name will you know understand what that is you know he's uh absolutely he'd um he'd done back in black i mean that's that's it all black uh, um, for those about to rock yeah high and dry pyromania hysteria for deaf leopard Def leopard stuff yeah heartbeat city who's gonna drive you home yeah um ryan adams anything i do i do it for you that yeah wow. um then shania's stuff mm-hmm. uh the three and only three hits, three for three off the cause in Blue album. He did, um, uh, what else? He did tracks for Backstreet Boys, for uh, Britney Spears. He's recently, more recently, produced the uh, Dark Horse album, Nickelback. He's done Maroon 5 yeah, since wow. then. And the latest Muse album called Thrones. Oh, really? He did that record too? Cool. Yeah, he did. So, he, yeah, he's just prolific and uh, no one comes close to the numbers that he can uh, spout in terms of sales and stuff. It's just insane. So, um, yeah, so he uh, he had, he was choosing the band and he said, uh, said to Andy, yeah, look, I, I like what I'm hearing here, but you know, we'd like to find someone local. Anyway, uh, by the end, they uh, – it, it, came too close to the time where the first show was, which was the end of May mm-hmm. in uh, 98. And uh, I got the call and uh, <laughs> Andy had told me about this guy, George Travis, who, who was the tour director. And he, uh, sure enough, George calls me and he says, hey, is that, is that Randall? <laughs> uh, this is George Travis. And 
and I said, "Oh, I know who you are, George." Yeah. And anyway, so uh, he uh, he said, "Well, let me tell you a little about this little project we got going on here." <laughs> and uh, yeah, they hoped that the tour might it might even go for eighteen months. They said, "You know, we're not sure how it's going to go because the woman in me had come out the first album of okay. Shania yep. that month." And um, it had done 14 million or so. And uh, it, coming over had come out, and people were saying, "Well, you know, it's 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 not the woman in me. It's okay." Yeah, but it's, right. Wow. You know, it's not. And so anyway, there, and there was some, you know, uh, you know, the experts, you know, were sure. sort of saying, oh, "No, this is uh, nowhere near the woman in me." Blah blah blah. So. Uh, we weren't sure how it was going to go, and George wasn't sure. He said, so anyway, but uh, that's the situation. He said, so it would be great if you could, you could, you know, whatever you've sent over has um, tweaked Mutt's interest enough to have me call you and find out what's going on. So anyway, uh, ten minutes later, Mutt called me. Wow. And and he uh, he wanted me to sing over the phone some parts just to make sure that I could reach them that, you know, they weren't out of my range and uh -huh. stuff. And, uh, harmony parts, a particular one that he wanted me to do was, uh, it's called, uh, no one needs to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, song from, uh, I think it's from the woman in me. Okay. And it's got a little yodel, kind of country yodel thing, you know, uh -huh. where you got to break in a falsetto sort of thing. So, and and he said, yeah, could could I hear you do that, please, Randy? And and so I sing it over the phone, and uh, and he goes, well, that, that's good. He says, all right now, but uh, after that, it uh, it it goes up a whole tone. It goes from C up to D. Uh, so so you'd be required to sing a D. Is that is that going to be okay? And I said, yeah, oh, yeah, mate, you'll be fine. I can, I can reach an E if, if I need to at a pinch, you know. He goes, oh, well, that's that's great. Uh, could I hear it, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't going to let me. I'm like, just, yeah, it's not good enough to just say you can do it. Right? Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, so, and I did that, and he said, yeah, great. All right, yeah. I'm happy to go ahead with this, and and uh, I'm looking forward to meeting you. And uh, you know, wow. I was shaking. I was literally shaking while, while I was. <laughs> so uh, George gets back on the phone five minutes later, and he says, uh, uh, he says, well, you know, look, if you can buy a ticket, I'll, I'll buy the receipt from you when you get here, and uh, and uh, just come in on a tourist visa. And you know, if it turns out that you're the guy, well, we'll fix up the visa here. Wow. And. Uh, and and I said, okay, okay. I said, but George. He says, yeah, what? I said, I'm the guy. <laughs> and that's what he said. He goes, yeah, 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 yeah. That's what the other 25 said. 25. <laughs> that's what the other 25 said. They'd have 25 people. Wow. Seat. So that when I showed up, yeah, uh, I introduced myself as Mr. X because they had already been rehearsing. Oh, okay. For, for three months. And I'm, I'm talking like 10-hour days, 10, wow. 12 days. Not oh, every oh. week, but yeah. but when they got together, like weeks and weeks and weeks of 14-hour, 12-hour day, minimum 12. Wow. So, um, uh, and they would, as they were playing all of this stuff, there was 25 songs they were going to put in the show. 
and uh, when they would say uh, they'd come across a part and say, well, who's going to sing that bit or who's going to play that guitar? Well, we need that guitar bit there. You know? And they'd kind of look at each other and think, well, you know, and point over to where I was standing. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd say, well, you know, Mr. X, who, whoever that, who ends up being there, it's going to be Mr. X's job to do that, right? <laughs> so I introduced myself as Mr. X, thinking uh, and basically saying, I said, no point in learning my name. I'll be gone tomorrow like the other 25, right? <laughs> uh, but I wasn't and I ended up hanging in there. And so my nickname for that whole tour and onwards, it was X. So, That's great. And so I have an X on virtually all of my guitars. I was going to ask why you've got that. Now I know. That's where it comes from. So that's yep. cool, man. Yeah, so was, mate, that was that was very lucky, and I will forever. Uh, I will. I never forget this. Uh, how uh, grateful my gratitude overflows to Andy Seashon mm-hmm. for throwing my name in there. I, I, I can. I, I don't know. I can never repay him for that because he put his neck on the block. Yeah. Uh, he's told Mutt, you know, one, one of the probably the greatest rock and pop producer of our time. Yeah. You don't want to look like a fool in front of someone like that. And Andy put his neck on the block and he said, I've got the guy. He's in Australia. He can do this. And, uh, you know, my gratitude uh, will never end to Andy for that. That's brilliant. Uh, So we did that tour for, it went through from May right through to the end of, uh, 99. Yeah. Uh, during which we did multiple, uh, you know, Europe and uh, uh, Grammys, um, American Music Awards, Billboard Music Awards, two uh, American Country Music Awards. Yeah. Uh, you know, Letterman, Leno, all of that stuff. Because you know. meanwhile, that album come on over, which. The experts aren't huh. sure about has become the biggest yes. selling album by female artist. Isn't that isn't that crazy? <laughs> so uh, we, uh, like I said, we started that uh, that tour in May, end of May, in '98, and there was a uh, presentation uh, for her on the top of the BMI building in Nashville in September. Yeah. Uh, we happened to be there. It was September 24th or 25th. We had a show there on September 25th in Nashville. I remember. I, I have a thing for dates. It's kooky. And so, um, but we had a, uh, we had a, uh, a presentation for her by the record company to present her with a plaque for two songs that had received a million, a million plays on radio. One of them was whose bed have your boots been under? And the other one, I think uh, was any man of mine. And, uh, yeah, a million plays crazy, huh? Wow. And uh, and Luke Lewis, the um, le- the head of Mercury Records, her, her label, he got up and said, you know, a lot of people are saying that this record doesn't have the legs that uh, the woman in me has. Uh, and he put up a chart that compared the sales at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that point, we're about 10 months into the release. I think it had been released late in uh, 97. Yeah. And uh, November 97, it was November 19th memory anyway uh, <laughs> um, uh, it had uh, and come on over had outstripped the woman in me at that same stage by like a million copies something like that and at that point it was at 
I think it was like close to three million uh, in September. And as we toured that that uh, continued touring throughout the following 15, 18 months, it uh, by the time we finished in the end of '99, we each had plaques uh, given to us celebrating 17 million. And of course, it's gone on to be uh, close. To, it must be close to uh, 50 million now worldwide. Mm. It'd be up there with Back in Black. So Mud has, you know, he has two albums in the top five of all time. That's nuts. It's crazy. It's just mental. And I get emails from him every day, telling me stupid jokes and stuff. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. That's cool. I um I've read that Mutt like so he he does the production, but he was very hands on making sure the show was perfect. Is is that true? Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, everything. Absolutely everything. Yeah. Yes. Um, I wish you could see my 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 fingers here, but because <laughs> um not the well the listeners aren't going to be able to see it, but um one of the uh, benchmark songs that they seem to find it difficult to turn the right stone to find someone to play. Uh-huh. Strangely was uh, Man, I Feel Like a Woman. Okay. So it starts with that, that sort of shuffled figure, the guitar thing. So it was obvious to me listening to it that it was played with fingers. But yeah. once I got over there, I, I was playing like a, a, a an A chord, capoed at the first fret. It's in B flat. It's B flat, so yeah. Capo on the first fret yeah. and uh, playing an A chord. Yeah. And I the the... As it were, the A, uh, A E A, the one five one. Yeah. If you know what I mean. Yeah. With for sure. my thumb, with I'm playing it with my thumb and two first fingers on my right hand. Yeah. Picking like that, dude, dude, and uh, which is sort so of a Blackmore thing, isn't it? Yeah, Just maybe going it is. back yeah, to that. Right. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So, um, uh, but sitting down once I arrived there and in rehearsal and sitting down with Mutt. He he said because uh, he's he's South African but educated in the in the UK and he said uh, uh, Randall actually it's just it's just the one and the five there if you if you can, can you like not do the one five one and I said <laughs> oh okay yeah right okay so I start with my thumb and first finger playing the one and five and uh, and he goes actually um, actually could you do you think you'd be able to play it with your first two fingers and not your thumb <laughs> really so. You kind of—I was kind of clawing at the, the one and the five yeah. with my index and middle finger uh-huh. on my right. Wow! If you can imagine that. Yeah, that's weird. Like a chook, right? <laughs> like, like a chicken, like scratching in the dirt. It was weird. And uh, he said because the the pad on your thumb is is broader and it won't have the attack that that <laughs> your your first your digit your digit your index finger will have, and so the. The one will be subdued by the five, and it'll be a bit. It just won't be the quite quite the right balance. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, okay. all right, yeah, you know, okay. He wow. said, now, now, will he said, now, will that mess up your singing? Will you be able to do that? And I said, oh, it'll take. You know, I'll just get used to it. That'll be fine. It'll be no problem. Okay, well, so uh, I did that, and uh, during rehearsal, that was like the second, first or second day. Okay. Fast forward to about four or five days in, the whole band's there. We're in their house, in his, in quotes, home studio, which is still the biggest studio that I've ever been in, ever. <laughs> uh, I'm not kidding. It was bigger than the massive room that the A Studio 301. You could fit the entirety of that floor of 301 into That's this studio. That's crazy. Wow. 
And whereabouts so, is this? Is this in Nashville? It was no, it was upstate New York, uh, okay. near, up near Lake Placid. Okay. St. Regis Falls was the name of the town, actually. Yeah. So anyway, but it's a big compound out, massive property with a lake and a mountain, and you know, it was just magnificent. So we're all in this studio, and and I had a headache. I had information overload, mm-hmm. and it was jet lag still, and just you know, struggling to keep up. And uh, I just wanted to give my brain a rest, you know. Yeah. And it was like four in the afternoon. We've been playing all day. We've got, we've got another four, four hours to play, you know. It was like, oh man, you know. And and so I reverted back to playing it with my thumb and first finger. Uh-huh. Now we've got our amps in isolation rooms where everything's mic'd up. We've got a massive monitoring setup. We've got in-ear monitors. Much sitting down the front. Uh, uh, where the audience might sit, if you like, yeah. uh, with a pair of monitors in front of him. Mm-hmm. He's, he's learning French. He's got his French book beside him sitting on a piano stool. <laughs> he's just jo- eyes closed and he's just you know, moving his head side to side listening to it. And and I just I just wanted to give my head a rest. Uh-huh. And so I slipped back to playing with thumb and first finger. And yeah, I'm yeah. watching him. And sure enough, he opens his eyes. No. He looks around. He sort of starts frowning. Like, what's <laughs> What's wrong? And he's looking around. No each, way. Each member looking like, what's going on here? Like, what? What? And he looks at me, and I kind of go, and I kind of like look, kind of that, give him one of those shocked kind of looks, kind of like eek, busted, kind of thing, <laughs> and and start playing it back with my first and second fingers again. Yeah. And he he smiles and nods and <laughs> holds up his first two fingers and he goes, yep. Holds up the first two fingers and then thumbs up. Yep. First two fingers, thumbs up. That's it. That's it. Good boy. But wow. he picked that out of nine players playing, right? Fine. I wasn't, you know, he, he picks that stuff out. He is wow. somewhere else, that guy. I don't use the term lightly. He is a genius. He is, he is uh, a beautiful eccentric who is incredibly well read and um, uh, will talk about any subject at length and and he's just an extraordinary man and he and i became uh vehement uh dissidents of the iraq war during the second tour and we spent a lot of time talking to get many many hours uh, became political buddies on that and and uh it was at the beginning of the invasion and all of that and we became uh yeah quite uh yeah uh that really cemented our relationship very much. All right, there you go. That's part one of my interview with Randall Waller. Man, I love that Mutt Lang story about the fingers. That's awesome. Far out. Hey, good lesson too for all you guys in cover band land who actually play that tune. Now you know how to play it properly, and uh, that's me included. I think I'll think of Randall every time I start that song now. Hey, so next week we continue on with our interview. There's uh, We start with another Mutt Lang superhuman hearing story, which is very cool. And we dig into Randall's um, touring rig a bit more on, on those two massive tours that he, that he did, plus, plus a bunch of other stuff and uh, what Randall's doing now as well, which is really, really exciting. So make sure you tune in next week to the Guitar Speak podcast. You know, the easiest way to do it is really just to subscribe to us on iTunes if you use some sort of iThingamajig or Stitcher if you're on Android. Stitcher's great for Android users. I think you can use it for Apple as well. 
um, or online at guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com. All of our episodes are there as well, and you can dig through any of them. We've got some good ones there. We're also on Facebook. We're on the Instagrams. You can uh, see what we're up to there as well and join in the discussion. We love to hear from people who've listened into the episodes. Okay, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, it's a pleasure to bring these interviews to you and I'm stoked to know people are actually listening to these things all around the place. So until next time, my name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you for listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. Bye now. Bye now.